0: Please uh, follow with me in your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, Last uh, week we saw and we heard that the word of God was rare in those days. Had God stopped speaking or had people stopped listening? We know that Eli and his sons were no longer listening. But we also know that God had not abandoned Israel to their idolatry. In his great mercy, he raised up young Samuel. And Samuel was learning to listen to the word of God. How can we speak the word of God if we're not listening to God? And I ask that question not just for preachers like myself, but for all of us. We're to be uh, the people who speak God's word. We're told that none of his words fell to the ground. This is in just the end of the previous chapter. His words had power. They didn't just die in midair for lack of life. I've got a pair of lorikeets. Every few days I let one fly free for a few hours. It just takes off and soars as it sings on its way and eventually comes back to its mate. The other one has never been able to fly. It takes off, but after one or two metres it falls to the ground. Do our words take off? Or do they simply fall to the ground? I suspect Eli's, old Eli's words, no longer had power. He started his ministry well. It wasn't a good finish for Eli. His words became lame. He had ceased to bring God's word to the people. But It's a wonderfully different story with Samuel. The Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. How much of our speaking, that's a question we should think about, how much of our speaking is full of futile, empty, powerless words because we're not listening to the word of God? What a wonderful thing when we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. When we hear the word of God, do we receive it not as the word of men but as what it really is? the word of god which is at work in us who believe i am um, got a dear friend and pastor craig millerwick who's in kenya for 3 weeks he's been there a week and he has seen some amazing things and i'll share a little bit more in our prayer time but in his, one of his last emails he said finally Brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it was also with you. He's quoting 2 Thessalonians. What struck me, Craig writes, was Paul's prayer that the word of the Lord be glorified. We don't often think of God's word being glorified, but we are to pray for just this. I think what Paul was praying for is that pagan people he was working amongst would receive a revelation about what God's holy word really is and the Lord's word be recognised for what it really is, the holy word of God, the living witness of the Spirit. He goes on, the church in the West, and I include me here, must repent with genuine tears from our pathetic and low view of the Bible We treat the Bible as a quarry to rumble through and pull out the rocks we like and find useful to our agendas as we go off to build our own temples and images of God, always with a Christian flavour, but still idolatrous nonetheless. I cannot see how the church in the West will ever escape the depravity we are swirling away in until God enables us to repent. Only he can change the way we treat him. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 4. This word was a word of judgment that would make the two ears of everyone who heard it tingle. It was a word intended to wake the nation up from its deadly complacency. So what was that word that came to Israel through Samuel? Uh, Probably at this point the fearful word of judgment that was about to visit the house of Eli and his two sons. And later, and we don't hear from Samuel, right up to chapter 7. But we know he's about his ministry through that time. But by the end of chapter 7, the word of God that comes to Israel through Samuel will deal with the idolatry that Israel again had fallen into. So chapter 4 tells the fulfilment, (coughs) of that specific word of judgement regarding Eli's two sons and himself. And uh, we heard of that in chapter 3. They were going to come to a, a very sad end. Now, we may think God only acts this way in Old Testament days. You know, this is not the way God operates now under the new covenant with the gospel. Well, not so. What about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, who both dropped dead after they lied to God and the church concerning the sale of property? God's concern... For his holy name has not ceased with the coming of Christ. What do we mean when we say, hallowed be your name? What are we praying? Let your name be made known as holy. Sanctify your name. Show yourself to be holy. What were the two sons of Eli profaning? God's holiness. Remember, they treated the Lord's offering and the sacrifices with contempt by keeping the best meat of the sacrifices for themselves. And following their corruption, it would appear that all Israel had begun to treat God and his holiness as a light thing. People don't fall, let's say we, don't fall into idolatry unless we have belittled God's glory. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate that. <clears throat> so this chip chapter, this chapter, this chapter is about how God shows Israel what happens. No, I've jumped ahead. People don't fall into idolatry unless they belittled God's glory. They were given laws regarding the making of the ark of the covenant and the way it was treated in their worship as the dwelling place of the glory of God and it was given to them to bring them to their knees to worship in awe they were not given the ark to wheel out when it suited them when they thought that a bit of God's power might be helpful. So this chapter is about how God shows Israel what happens when they take his dwelling place for granted. He no longer turns up when they expect him. Rather, he turns upon them and becomes their enemy. Failure to honour his presence among them, failure to hallow his name results in the loss of his presence. In dishonouring the ark, they dishonoured God. In Leviticus, you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honour me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into this land which I have given you. God will not allow his people to continually dishonour his name and he will work so that his name is honoured even if it means uh, bringing us through some little disappointments in life so that we look up and see his glory and know him as he is. Jesus was never Faithless in honouring his father's name right through to the end. So we'll hear this morning of the loss of God's glory from the land. Now it's God's great mercy that this is not permanent in the story of Israel. It was also his mercy on the nation that he was willing to suffer shame and defeat through allowing his dwelling place, the ark, to be taken captive. God suffered the shame of defeat to expose Israel's false confidence and misplaced faith. Could we ever be guilty of misplaced faith, bringing God down to something we can manage and exploit for our own desires? We can be blind to our natural self-confidence, the way we can utilise God for our own ends without any Awareness of how proud we've become. This is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The Ark of the Covenant plays a crucial part in this narrative. And in this chapter, it will appear useless and powerless, it'll make God seem weak and ineffective. But in later chapters we'll discover that that is not the case at all. It actually takes 20 years from the beginning of chapter 4 to chapter 7 verse 2 where Samuel calls the people to repentance. 20 long years before all the house of Israel begin to lament after the Lord in spite of the great defeats they're about to go through, 20 years. So what brought the people to that place of brokenness and repentance? Well, we hear the beginning of it in this chapter 4, and let's just look at it more closely. Chapter 4 begins with the first recorded battle with the Philistines. These were a people lived on the coast. They'd, they'd taken over the coastal area and the foothills foot of Canaan, And they would cause a lot of grief to Israel over many decades. They are powerful. They had new weapons. I'm not sure if they had drones at that point. They had Greek military equipment that were new to the Israelites. They processed iron. They were the first people in Canaan to use iron. And they made these iron chariots, a formidable instrument of war. Their influence over Canaan is clear because their name became the name of the whole land, Palestine, Philistine, Palestine. Can you see that? And in this first battle, they, Israel suffers a terrible defeat. 4,000 men were killed. In some ways, this, the, 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 Israel facing this powerful nation is a bit like Ukraine facing Russia. And in this first encounter, they experienced this devastating, crushing defeat. And when they come back to the camp, the elders ask, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They didn't ask why had the Philistines defeated them. They said, why had the Lord defeated them? That's interesting. They still had an understanding that they were God's people. They knew if the Philistines defeated them, it was because the Lord was fighting against them instead of for them. They're not that dumb. They ask the right question. But they don't go too far to try to answer that question. Instead, they come up with a brilliant solution, and that is to carry the ark... (coughs) From its resting place in Shiloh, onto the battlefield, assuring them of victory, they believe. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant represents the very throne of God in Israel. It is the place of his holy presence. So, great idea. The way to guarantee the Lord's presence was to make sure the Ark was there. No heart heart searching as to what they'd done. One commentator suggested their idea was that God should be forced to fight for them. If he was not willing to do it for their sake, he would have to do it for his honour's sake. In a sense, they were trying to twist God's arm to force him to come to their rescue. Because God wouldn't let the ark be taken captive, Would he? God wouldn't let that happen to the church, would he? So they had this superstitious superstitious faith centred on the ark rather than the Lord himself. They failed to discern that their defeat was in fact a judgement of God and instead of searching their hearts, repenting, returning to the Lord, to a true honouring of God, they presumed on his presence and power. And in verse 5 there, enthusiasm, when the ark was brought into. there was a mighty shout so that the earth itself shook. You know, enthusiastic praise is wonderful, but if it's not based in truth, it means nothing. Absolutely nothing. These people come come near to me with their mouth. They honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, they were all excited to how God was now with them. The ark was there. There's going to be a great victory. They had no interest in hallowing the name of God in their worship and in the way they were living. Other things had crowded in and taken away their heart's devotion, their heart's affection. They were chasing the idols of the land, just like the Canaanites had for centuries. And God for them had become someone they could utilise for in the crisis. They'd lost all sense of the fear of God. They saw God more as someone who they could use when they needed him. He was no longer in their hearts, but he was in their back pocket, just in case. Israel, and can I say the church, needs to be taught again. We all need to be taught again to hold God in awe. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim had been taken for granted. What they abused, they would have to lose before their hearts fully returned to the living God. They saw the ark as their secret weapon. And as they brought the ark, who were there? The two sons of Eli. Hophni and Phineas. Which really represented the way they treated God, loosely, lightly. Without a change of heart, Israel's mighty shout was futile. They gave no thought to the way Eli's sons had profaned, kicked against God's holiness. They gave no thought to the flood of idolatrous worship that had regained its hold on the hearts of the people. They gave no thought as to why God had let them suffer defeat at the hands of the Philistines. If the ark was with them, then they knew God was with them. They needed to probe no deeper than that. No need to be convicted of the way they took God for granted. No need to examine their hearts as to what they were really trusting in. No need to make it perfectly clear that it was not the ark of the Lord that would save them, but it was the Lord. Of the ark. Spurgeon said, instead of attempting to get right with God, these Israelites set about devising superstitious means of securing victory over their foes. In this respect, most of us have imitated them. We think of a thousand inventions, but we neglect the one thing needful. They forget the main matter, which is to enthrone God in the life and to seek his will by faith in Christ. Anyone listening to that great shout would have thought, they're trusting God. But there was no true trust in God. They were trusting in the ark. In fact, the Philistines were in greater awe of God They were terrified. They remembered what God had done against the Egyptians. But then they took courage and they said, no, we can fight. We don't want to become subject to Israel and and Israel's gods. So even though they were terrified of the Ark and what that might mean in this battle, they went for it and they went for it and they won. And uh, we're told Israel was defeated. A great slaughter, 30,000 foot soldiers killed and the Ark of God was captured. How weak does God seem now? Israel's God looks quite dead. But wait till next week and you'll discover that's not the case. The Philistines ears are going to tingle they will be shocked at what they've brought into their own camp. But at this point in the story, God is willing to appear weak in the face of his enemies, to go into exile for the glory of God to be covered with what appears to be the shame of defeat. When we think of the cross, the abuse, the derision poured out on Jesus, crucified in weakness... God looks weak. It looks like it's not just the death of Messiah, it's the death of God. If such a man could be crucified like that, then where is God when evil triumphs? Even the disciples were devastated. There was no deliverance, only utter darkness and despair. See how willing God is to look weak in order to destroy our easy-come, easy-go faith. He brings us to the place where all hope is lost and we see the terrible power of evil devastating all that we trusted in, all that we'd hoped for. And then out of the ashes, out of the cold, dark tomb of death shines a blazing glory that this world cannot contain. He was crucified in weakness, but he was raised in power. He was declared to be the son of God with power through the resurrection. God is willing to look weak and powerless for a time in order to rise up over his enemies, over death itself, in order to hallow his name, in order to show forth the glory of his majesty, the power of his grace over all that terrorises and enslaves in order that we might not doubt his power to overcome the evil of this world or the evil of our own hearts. God is willing to appear weak in the eyes of unbelievers for the church to bring shame on the name of God. God is willing for that to happen. so that we come to the end of ourselves and turn to God and purify our hearts. And then God raises us up, willing to be taken captive by his enemies in order to teach not only the Philistines, but also Israel itself, the holiness of God. So what is clear in this whole debacle is that God is not caught off balance put under pressure to perform when he doesn't want it to, and then suffering the shame of defeat along with his people. Rather, in this bloody massacre, God is fulfilling his word through Samuel to destroy the family of evilites no more corrupt priests will arise from Eli's house to lead God's people astray. The slate will be wiped clean, opening the way for Samuel under God's hand to turn Israel back to himself. And this is all mercy and grace. You know, if we could see what the sovereign, holy hand of God the God of grace, is weaving through all the shocks and horrors of history, we would be amazed. God has not abdicated his reign, no matter what despair or terror this world faces. So what a tragic, tragic picture of a messenger fleeing from the battlefield and finding old Eli, 98 years old and blind, waiting earnestly for news. How did it go, my son? And the messenger answered, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has also been a great defeat among the people. Great defeat, 30,000. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards and his neck was broken. He died for the man was old and heavy, too much meat from his son's little game. He judged Israel 40 years. It was not so much the news of the death of his sons that caused him to faint it was the news that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. He was expecting the word of God's judgment on his two sons. Samuel had shared that with him, but he didn't expect that the very throne of God's presence on earth, the Ark of the Covenant, would be lost. His heart trembled for the Ark of God But it was Eli who had allowed the corruption of Israel's worship. He was fearful, but he'd done nothing about the behaviour of his sons. He did not honour God, and so his ministry came to a sad and tragic end. But not only Eli, but his pregnant daughter-in-law, in the shock of hearing her husband's death and the capture of the Ark of God, she gives birth prematurely and as her own life drains away, the women attending the birth try to bring comfort with the news of a son. But in a heartbreaking cry, she names the boy Ichabod. But glory has departed. In her last moments of life, her greatest anguish is the realisation, probably lost on everyone else, that the glory of God had departed from Israel. This was far greater than the loss of a battle in which 30,000 soldiers are slaughtered. Far deeper grief than the loss of her father-in-law and husband. She's given birth to a son. She knows she'll not survive to see him grow up. But beyond even this sorrow, her deepest anguish is the knowledge that Israel had gambled with the very glory of God and lost it to the enemy. You see, the glory of God, it's one of the great gifts that Paul mentions in Romans, given to Israel. And they took it for granted. And so the glory departed. If they would not sanctify his name, then he would sanctify his own name. But it would be through what appeared to be weakness and defeat. The Lord would have his day, but it would not be that day. That day would be a day of darkness and despair. And it may be that some of our days have been days of darkness and despair because we've sensed the loss of God's glory among us. Could we, like Israel... Have God on our lips but far from our hearts? Have we wrongly presumed on God's presence? Because we have the gospel, we have good preaching, we have great songs, we have all these familiar signs of God's presence around us. Could we presumptuously rely on these gifts without actually relating in covenant love to the God who chose us? And called us to be a holy priesthood who love and serve Him far beyond anything this world has to offer. Someone asked, What is God doing when the church is falling down? One answer might be God is causing the church to crumble. If only, if the only way to restore awe into the hearts of His people is to bring us to our knees, then this is what God will do. And we'll see next week that God will not only teach Israel again to hold God in awe, but he'll teach the Philistines. I just think it's wonderful. And what we're seeing in Mobilong, God's teaching some Philistines there about the holiness of God and his grace and mercy. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. The very thing that was given to Israel to teach them to live in grateful awe of God's holiness and mercy was totally misused and abused. The Ark of the Covenant intended to assure Israel that the glory of his presence was with them as they hallowed his name by true worship, trusting in the way of atoning sacrifice that he'd given to them. It was all there, full of grace, full of mercy. This ark spoke of great mercy given by a holy God in order to for his people to fulfil their calling as a priestly nation to all the nations of the world, showing true worship in a world of idolatry. That's our calling. And they took this reality. They re-imaged God according to their idolatrous hearts, happy to utilise God when they felt a need, Rest of the time, whoring after the idols of the land. You know, many people today have no, have an idea of a God who sits in the background. He's available on tap when you need him. If he exists, he exists to help us in a crisis. Otherwise, he's no kind of God I would believe in. For the rest of the time, he doesn't bother you. He's not too much demanding. And so this God, in our thinking, has no weight of glory. He sits easily in our back pocket, all ready to be pulled out when required. You know, some, sometimes we define God as unconditional love. He's all cuddles, but no bite. He'd never cause us pain or grief. The Bible says that God doesn't delight to bring grief to the sons of men. It doesn't say that God doesn't bring grief. He'd rather not bring grief. The Bible says that God is slow to get angry. It doesn't mean that God doesn't get angry. God does abound in steadfast love, but not with a weak love that leaves us unchanged. God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. Much of the church has re-imaged God into something more user-friendly, and as a result, we're left with something far less and the majesty and glory of God that came through Jesus Christ. Remember John in the Revelation when he saw Christ in all his great majesty. He fell at his feet as though dead. If we have a gospel that belittles God's glory, we do not have a gospel that will have power to change the human heart whether on the Mount of Transfiguration where they were eyewitnesses of his majesty, where he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light, or in in John's vision where again his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You can't look at it. What they were beholding was the light of the knowledge of, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is no small glory that has come to us in the gospel. The unapproachability of God's holy glory, remember the priest once a year only, into the Holy of Holies with the blood of sacrifice, that was utterly surpassed by the revelation of a new and living way opened up into the Holy of Holies in heaven through our great priest and his atoning blood. But this unfettered access that we have through Christ to the Father in no way diminishes the awe of the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And when we forget this, we too easily turn the gospel into the something that serves our ends rather than something that serves God and his ends, his glory. The truth is that only that which serves best his honour and glory serves best our great need. Only when God is given his rightful place do we find our place in true joy and freedom. In one sense, the glory had to depart from Israel in order for Israel to rightly seek his glory anew. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, search all our hearts. Lord, we, or do we long, do we long that we might meet together as your people with a profound sense of your holy presence among us. And do we live each day with the wonder that your holy Spirit dwells in us and with us? And do we long, dear Father, that your name might be made known and loved and held dear? in our communities, in our families and across the nations? And do we give and serve to show such a longing is genuine? Father, we confess that there is much that we chase that is heading in other directions and does not show how great your kingdom is and your power and glory And yet this is the place Christ went to the cross to win in our hearts. And thank you, Father, it's not our power that can restore your place in our worship, in our lives, but it is Christ who overcomes our sin and all that detracts from your honour and glory and turns our hearts afresh. So, Father, turn us, we pray. Because we can't turn ourselves. Renew us through the power of Christ and the new life that He's brought us into. The power of your grace. The power of your love, Father. Oh, may we know such mercy here and across your church to revive your people and their love and their honour of you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.